this morning, we're going to look at a story that is one of the most unique stories in all of Jesus's public ministry. And, you know, whenever I, I, I preach this sermon, there could be several different messages that could be preached from this passage. There is a great deal that we will leave untouched today. And there are some questions raised by this text that I will only touch very briefly, and then some I won't even have the time to touch at all. Um, this story is the story of the man, the man possessed by demons that Jesus meets on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where really three worlds meet. Suffice it to say, almost everything in this story is just a little bizarre. A man comes to Jesus in a shocking condition. Jesus agrees to a very surprising cure. The townspeople come to Jesus with a strange request, and Jesus gives the man an unexpected answer. So we're going to see in our passage today, these three worlds meet in a strange story, the underworld of evil spirits, the visible world of the human experience, and the upper world of the divine control are the three worlds that are all going to collide in our story. Evidently, this encounter made quite an impression on the disciples because it is found in three of our four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The disciples never forgot how Jesus liberated a man who was infested with demons. Before we look at the details of the text, an underlying issue deserves our attention. In reading this story, some people downplay in our society today the reality of the demonic, calling it a symbolic of evil in our world today. Other, ways, other people see it as ancient way of saying that this man just had a severe mental illness. To say that this man was insane or mentally ill completely misses the point and evacuates the story of its primary meaning. This is not a story about Jesus curing mental illness. It's a story about Jesus showing his authority over the power of darkness. People in Asia and Africa, they read this story and they understand and they shake their heads. People in Haiti know what the demonic is all about. What seems alien to us is commonplace to other cultures around the world. I can remember as uh, a young man, my dad went down to speak for uh, his friend that was pastoring a church in Ponce, Puerto Rico. And back in the early 90s, the you know open windows, the breeze just came through, and there was a woman who stood across the street from the church with a megaphone screaming at the top of her lungs the entire church service. And the pastor of the church says, she only does it while the church is meeting. We don't know where she lives or where she's from, but she stands out here screaming with a megaphone while we're trying to have church. We try talking to her. The best that we can surmise is that she's demonically, you know, oppressed. That's why this happens. In other places around the world, that Action is very commonplace. We do not see that as much in America today. That was really my first as a young man, kind of coming across that. 
in seeing that. You know, Jesus had come to the region of the Gerasenes on the eastern side of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is Gentile territory. The Jews occupied the northern part of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum sat, and they occupied the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but on the eastern side, it's Gentile territory. The region is called Decapolis, which means ten cities. He had come to this area to rest and seek relief from the Jews who were following him on the other side. He had these large crowds who kept following him. He needed rest, so he comes over to the Gentile side of the sea. And a study of the text reveals really kind of four different prayers or requests that is made of Jesus in this passage. The demons make the first two, the townspeople make the third, and the liberated man makes the fourth. We can group the details of the story. We're going to call them prayers today, around four prayers that we find in the story. The first one is prayer number one, do not torment me. Let's read, Mark, starting Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how this unfortunate man became infested with demons. The Bible does not say, and it's useless to speculate, it's sometimes said that demon possession is a result of some kind of sinful activity. That may be true, but the, the Bible never presents demon possession as the result of a particular sin or a set of sins. What we can say for certain is that the demons are spirits that God had originally created to worship him. They were originally good angels who followed Lucifer and his rebellion against God. We actually looked at this this past week in our group here on Tuesday night. They are powerful spirits who now serve Satan and his evil purposes on this earth. Their purpose is entirely wicked. When they infested this poor man, they drove him from society, gave him incredible physical power, and caused him great torment. People tried to chain him and shackle his hands and his feet for his own safety, but somehow he broke the chains and the shackles and he roamed free among the tombs. They put him under guard, but the guards could not restrain him. The demons caused this man to act in bizarre, increasingly bizarre ways so that he ended up living away from the rest of society in the tombs. When I think about this man, you know, I, I couldn't help but think that this was somebody's son from the town. Somebody's uncle. And no doubt the guards were probably family members there trying to protect his life. They were probably trying to restrain him with chains, not as a sense of punishment to him, but as a sense of trying to help him from hurting himself. 
You know, Dad had been this way for a long time. Humanly speaking, we might look at him as he was a hopeless case. Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. What a strange action. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The most shocking fact, and the one we're thinking about, is the demons knew who Jesus was in this passage. There is no debate here about the real Jesus. When the man Jesus, the man came to Jesus, he fell down because even the demons believe, it says in James chapter 2, verse 19. And they tremble before the Son of God. So we see here in, the, in this passage, uh, verse 6 and 7, the demon knew Jesus' name. He knows who Jesus really is, Son of the Most High God. And he knows what Jesus came to do to torture him eternally. You see, demons, they are not atheists. They fear Jesus even though they do not worship him. Why did the demon ask Jesus not to torment or torture him? Because he knew Jesus had the ability to throw him in the pit or call the abyss forever. And he asked Jesus not to send him there prematurely. He has a request of Jesus. We're going to see what is that request. Number two, send us to the pigs. Verse eight, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my, replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, do not earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So when Jesus commands the evil spirits to come out, they know they must obey him. And what happens next is a round of negotiations between Jesus and the demons. First, he asks the demon who speaks through the man, what is your name? There is not a more simple request for identification. It means something like, who are you? Identify yourself. The man answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I have to remember in that time, a Roman legion is, an, a, 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 um, is a part of the Roman army. A legion was a Roman military unit of 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know if there were 6,000 demons inside this man. I think it was probably just symbolic for there were many demons possessing this man. He's saying, I'm so full of demons, I don't know who I am. It's like an invading army has taken over his personality, and that is all that the man knows. How did he end up with thousands of demons? We don't know. The text doesn't say. 
And evidently it doesn't matter for our understanding of the story of how he came to be in this state. But when the demons realize they're about to be cast out, the next part of this negotiation is they beg to be sent in to the pigs, to not leave the region. Perhaps this part of Decapolis was fertile soil for demonic activity. Perhaps it was a hotbed of pagan religious practices. The Greek emphasized that they repeatedly begged Jesus not to send them somewhere else. Since there were a herd of 2,000 pigs nearby, the demons asked to be sent into the pigs. So we have several kind of perplexing questions as we come to this text. A number of these questions arise at this point. Whose pigs are they? <laughs> we know that pigs were considered unclean by Old Testament law. If a Jewish farmer owned the pigs, he was in direct violation of the law. But since this was Gentile territory on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it seems more likely that the pigs were owned by a Gentile farmer. So he would not have been subject to Old Testament law. A second question often asked is, how can demons enter animals? Although much has been written about this point, it is nearly all speculative. We simply don't have enough information in the Bible to answer a simple question like this. We know that it happened only one time during Jesus' ministry, and that's the only clear record in the Bible that we have of something like this ever happening. Note that the demons must ask permission of Jesus before they can enter the pigs. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that demons are on some kind of same level or same plateau as Jesus or God the Father. And don't fall in the trap of treating Satan as if he were some kind of junior God, because he is not. Satan is a created being who can do nothing Nothing without God's permission. We see that multiple times throughout Scripture. Nothing without God's permission. In this story, we see that Jesus has absolute power on what the demons do and where they go. The actual miracle itself happens quickly. At the command of Jesus, the demons leave this man. He regains his sanity. The demons enter the pigs. The pigs run down the steep bank into the water where they drowned. Kind of a bang, bang, bang. It all happens very quick. Now we come to, as we walk through these kind of several perplexing questions, why did the demons ask to be sent into the pigs? The text doesn't tell us, but there are several possibilities. Number one, so they wouldn't be sent into the abyss. They did not want to go into the permanent abyss. So that they could continue, number two, maybe to have a bodily home to continue their evil activity. Maybe it's because they wanted to destroy the pigs because they knew that destroying the pigs would ultimately set up trouble for Jesus with the townspeople. You remember, demons are bent on trouble and destruction. That much is clear. The point of the story is not to destroy the demons, but to deliver the demonized man from their power. That is the point of the story, and to show the power of Jesus over death and hell. The pigs are purely secondary. 
Jesus manifests his authority precisely where the demons manifest theirs in the life of this poor, afflicted soul. We can only say that by sending the demons into the pigs, Jesus was providing proof positive that the demons had left the man. If he had just told them, flee and leave the man, yeah, we would see evidence of the man's changed life, but by sending them into the pigs, the pigs going crazy and running off the cliff, proof positive that the demons had left the man, entered the herd of pigs, and evidence that God was in control. No one could deny what had happened. What is the next request or the prayer that we see in this passage? It comes from the townspeople. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those that had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. Now, isn't this a strange request? This man who had just been tormented, crazy on the countryside, they see this man who is now clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, And their first thought is not, who is this man Jesus? Their first thought is not, this man must be something special, that the power he has power over demons. No, their first thought is, this man's got to leave. The end of verse 17, to me, is one of the saddest verses in all of the New Testament. Jesus came to bring life, but the people chose death. He came to bring freedom, but the people chose bondage. He came to bring light, but the people preferred to walk in darkness. You would think that they would be grateful that this dangerous man had been healed, cured, and finally clothed in his right mind, as a result of being delivered by Jesus, but it was not so. As word spread like wildfire, I'm sure the crowd began to grow. And they gathered there on the shore, amazed by what they see. This former madman was made a new man. He now sits quietly at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The man they had called crazy was now perfectly normal. The man who had run around naked, was now formally clothed. The man who broke their chains was now sitting quietly. The man who had once had a legion possessing him now sits at the feet of Jesus. You know, I like to think that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this was somebody's uncle or brother or son. He probably had the nickname of, yeah, that's just crazy Uncle Joe out there on the hillside referred to him with some kind of adjectives. You know, really the response of the people can be told in three words. 
they were afraid. They were afraid because change bothers people. Even change for the better. This explains sometimes why dysfunctional families often stay exactly the way they are. And this is why people stay in destructive relationships year after year. It's because they say, at least we know what to expect. When people look at the man, there was no doubt that a miracle had occurred. Evidently, the pigs mattered more to the townspeople than the man. But to Jesus, the man mattered way more than the pigs. They couldn't handle the transformation. Instead of rejoicing, they were afraid. Of what? What were they afraid of? Of Jesus. They were afraid of anyone with that kind of power. What will we do next? What will he do next to our town? The great author C.S. Lewis once remarked that Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He does not always do what we expect, but he always does what is best. Sometimes they want you to, be, to leave because they don't have a place in their lives for a truly changed person. Dysfunction they could live with, but redemption by Christ is not a cognitive spot in their mind that they have a place for. Fear, ignorance, and selfishness combine in the request that Jesus leave their area, and he does. You see, all throughout Scripture, Jesus does not stay where he is not wanted. As far as we know, he never went back to this area of Galilee again. And there's something to think about. When Jesus knocks at the door of your heart, you run quickly to let him in. Do not think that he is ever obliged to come back again. Many people are open to Jesus as long as he keeps his distance. But when he comes too close, they get uncomfortable. They like the gentle Jesus of the children picture books that they can touch for good luck, but they recoil from a Christ who demands their total allegiance when he says follow him. And some are against Christianity because Christianity, it threatens their lifestyle. It threatens their habits and their personal morality. All of us are apt to ask Jesus to depart when he comes too close and he crimps in on our cherished plans. We want a gentle Jesus who will keep his nose out of our business and who will take us to heaven but won't interfere with us on this earth. We want a Jesus who builds our self-esteem, makes us happy, gives our kids morality, but we want nothing to do with the Lord from heaven who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And more than the people today, they hear the gospel and then they say, if Jesus comes in, something else will have to go, and I don't want to let go of something else. The people who came to investigate the miracle asked Jesus to leave because it was bad for business. They were right. When Jesus comes into your life, the business of your life will never be the same again. He will utterly transform your life. Before his conversion, St. Augustine, the great theologian in Hippo, said that he sometimes prayed prior to accepting Christ, save me, O Lord, save me, but not now. 
(laughs) He is not the first or the last person to pray that way. You see, St. Augustine was involved in a sex cult. And he knew that he would have to give that up to follow Christ. Prayer number four, or request number four, let me go with you. Verse 18, and he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. No doubt, this man was famous among the ten cities of the Decapolis. I mean, a man, a naked man living in the tombs, crying out day and night that could not be bound by chains, no doubt everyone in the Decapolis knew Uncle Joe. He went out to the region of the Decapolis sharing how his life had been changed and the people in the ten cities, they marveled. Think about the various prayers or requests in this passage. He, regret, he granted the request of the demons that they be sent into the pigs. He granted the request of the townspeople. He went away, but he refused to grant the request of the new believer. He did not allow the man to come with him. I think sometimes we see answered prayer is not always a blessing and unanswered prayer is not always a burden. In this case, it was better for the man to stay there among his own people. They needed him and he needed to be there. No doubt his request to go with Jesus was sincere. He may have feared if you leave, I'll fall back into the old life again. That is a very natural fear. But he didn't understand that the best defense against a renewed satanic attack was to occupy his mind and his life with the greatness of what God had done in his life. Nothing would steady him in his new life like continuing to tell the story to the world around him about his deliverance that came at the hand of Jesus. Children love to play the the game in school, show and tell. You know, a lot of times teachers will have this after Christmas time when kids get their new toys. Let's have a little show and tell at school. Jesus instructs the man to go and tell. Go to the people you know best and tell the thing that you know best, which is what God has done for you. Jesus did that kind thing by leaving him behind. He would be a living reminder to the Decapolis of what Jesus had done and the power of God. This is where all missionary outreach begins. Start where you are and tell them what you know. 
Jesus found a demoniac and left behind a missionary to the power of God. Go and tell. That's what Jesus said to do. Anyone can do that. Don't let anyone tell you that you cannot go and tell about this Jesus that you serve. You do not have to learn a lot of verses or memorize a complicated outline. You don't have to be a good speaker or have a winsome personality. You don't have to get permission from anyone to tell your personal testimony. You don't have to write a book or a sermon. You don't need to have a big audience. You can start with one. Go and tell those in your world around you. This leads to a very simple question. What has Jesus done for you? What has he done for you? When's the last time you asked yourself that question? Has the Lord ever touched your life and changed you? Or have you been a bystander all of these years while others came to Jesus? Can you tell anyone what Christ has done for you? If you can't, maybe you need to ask yourself, has my life really been changed? Perhaps you need to come to a definite moment in your life where you met Jesus and he changed your life. This passage also helps us come to the question, answer the question is, where does God want me? Where does he want me? The answer is, he wants you right where you are. There is a fear sometimes that if I come and follow Jesus, he's going to send me to the ends of the earth and I'm going to have to live in a third world country serving as a missionary. No. That is the call for some people, but God wants you right now, right where you are. And if he wants you somewhere else, he can move you at any time. What if you are the only Christian in the shop, the office, the factory, the store, the club, the classroom, your gym, your family, your neighborhood? What if you're the only one and he has you right there, right now, for the specific purpose of go and tell? The challenge is the same for you as it was for the man in our story. Go and tell what the Lord has done in your life. Everyone has the same charge. Everyone in this room, the same charge is given to us. Go and tell. Go back to your classroom. Go back to your factory. Go back to your office. Go back to your company. Go back to your classmates. Go back to your family. Go back to your neighborhood. Go and tell them the great things that the Lord has done. Go tell them. Go tell them. Go tell them. One final question about the story, and we're done. Can this happen today, or is this story merely a relic from the pre-scientific era? The answer is yes. Men and women can be demonized today. Yes, demons can drive people from society. Yes, demons recognize spiritual authority. And yes, those in spiritual bondage 
can be radically changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of geography, and you don't have to be demonized to experience the liberating power of Jesus. You see, no evil habit is beyond the power of Jesus, no sin is beyond his forgiveness, and no human situation is beyond his healing touch. If your life is a mess, ask Jesus for his deliverance. Admit you can't change and then cry out for mercy. If you come to Christ, he will not turn you away. And when Christ answers, and he always does, go and tell the world how your life has been changed. When is the last time you shared with someone in your life about the work of our wonderful Jesus? That's why we're here, church. We are here to go and tell. So as we leave here today, let us be reminded of that fact and be reminded of our mission in our world around us, in our Decapolis, to tell the world of our wonderful Lord and how he's changed my life and how he can change yours too. Let's pray.